0: The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling, and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. In light of the pandemic's revelation of the essential nature of healthcare workers, physician turned journalist Norman Swan talked to Lisa Pryor and Amy Coops about leaving their successful journalism careers to pursue medicine. This compelling conversation held at Antidote 2022 addresses individual versus social ambitions, the nature of the ultra demanding profession of medicine and the gift of service. This event was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022.
1: Hi everybody, thank you very much for coming on. So this is called A Higher Calling and um, we are going to be talking about whether or not, well it's not going to be a competition between journalism and medicine, but the three of us have changed roles um, and we're going to talk about that change in roles and what it means to us and a bit of the meaning of life along the way. I'd like to introduce Dr Amy Koops, who um, was an eminent journalist before she became a medical student and now graduated and training as an emergency physician. And Lisa Pryor, who, again, an eminent uh, journalist with a long history in journalism, particularly the Sydney Morning Herald. And uh, Lisa is one year away from completing her training as a psychiatrist, so, you know, just be careful. (laughs) Um, Please welcome our two. The thing I notice of both of you is I reckon neither of you have fallen far from the tree. I mean, you're doing emergency medicine. I mean, that's just, you've translated one war zone for another. And psychiatry, it's all about stories. You know, journalism is about stories, and you're still interested in people's stories? Lisa?
2: Definitely. I, I think there are lots of similarities between um, journalism and psychiatry. And I guess that's the thing. When I changed careers, I wasn't changing careers because I didn't like journalism. I loved journalism and I, I was expanding my horizons, but it wasn't about trying to escape from what I was doing.
1: Mm. And the storytelling? Is that part of it?
2: I think storytelling is a massive part of medicine and I think psychiatry particularly. And I think that's because... Uh, when people are experiencing mental illness, I think it's, we need to understand people as a whole person, their stories, how they came to be in that position. And, for example, to think about more than diagnosis, but think of formulation, which is how we, we sort of put together the story of how someone came to be unwell. I think that's incredibly important in
1: psychiatry. I mean, I, I, uh, I was going to become a psychiatrist at one point, And I still use the psychiatry interview as my formula for doing a long, ra- a long radio or television interview. You know, the, the rules, like the open-ended questions, don't be afraid of silence. And the person I kind of learnt from was Professor Anthony Clare, who was Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin, who had a show on Radio 4 called In the Psychiatrist's Chair, which was just, if you can get it online, you should try it, because it's just amazing, the, the, the interviews there. So, Amy, um, I mean, you're just a sort of an acute junkie here. <laughs> you, you like drama.
3: Obviously, I'm an adrenaline junkie. Yeah. I don't, I, yeah. I made, someone made the comment to me when I said, you know, I, I was obviously gravitating towards emergency at the end of medical school. Um, and a friend said to me, of course you like emergency, it's the newsroom of the hospital. And, it, and I was always so like a breaking yeah. news journalist. So I guess it, it appealed to me in that sense. But I, I agree with Lisa that stories are so integral. And I think that's really interesting what you say about the using the interview technique. Because part of the psychiatric interview is like making your mental status assessment. So you're looking at the nonverbal. And I think that that can tell you a lot. And I think that it actually stands you in good stead as a doctor to, to, to see that whole picture what people aren't saying and don't necessarily want to tell you, yeah. but you need to know. <laughs> yeah. The
1: criticism of the rest of medicine is, about side psychiatry, is that they don't bother to find out your story.
3: Yeah. I think that's a pretty fair charge, to be levelled at some of our colleagues.
2: Well, well, And also, I don't think it's necessarily that people don't want to know the story. It's also about time limits. Mm. Like, especially in... Like, so much of the heavy lifting in medicine is done in general practice, and that's such an important role for physical and mental health, and yet people are so time-limited in the amount of time they can have with a patient, it's hard to get to know people's stories, I think. Mm.
1: And I said there was more time. So what was the journey? You woke up one day and said the hell, I'm not going to do journalism anymore, I want to be a doctor, I want to save lives?
3: Uh, I don't know. Like, I think it was a slow burn for me, and it was a slow burn out of being a journalist, I think was part of it. Um, I found myself increasingly feeling as though I was participating in a toxic ecosystem that I didn't want to be party to anymore. Um, that was just
1: explain why that talks that describe that.
3: Well, <laughs> we were in the era of. Don't I mean, for Mabbit. me to describe it's a
1: career-ending <laughs> description. At least you can do it safely now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, that was also part of it. I think you know, like I felt very constrained as um, someone who, like, as a news journalist, you're very trained to be like present one side, present the other. You know, don't let your opinion come into things, and. I had opinions and I, and I found that model increasingly problematic and I felt uh, as though, you know, the News Corp, like conservative politics dyad was something that I found really frustrating and, um, like, terrible for our democracy and I just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. So I guess that was the beginning and I started looking around for meaning. Like, I was sort of like, if I'm not getting that meaning from my life, what would a life of meaning look like? And the question I asked myself was, if you die tomorrow, what would you go to your deathbed wishing, like, I'd taken that chance, I wish I'd, I wish I'd taken that punt, you know? Yeah. I, th- I wanted to be a doctor when I finished school, but I didn't believe that I could. Um, and it was one of those unfinished businesses of life for me.
1: Did you go into journalism with a higher calling?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I was very idealistic. I still am very idealistic, I must say. But um, yes, I, I definitely saw journalism as like the fourth estate, you know, a pillar of democracy, as it were. Um, and then, I don't know, the, maybe the further you go into it, the more you realise that it's it's less than what you thought. It's not what you can... It's not necessarily what you can achieve. I remember this like, very like, apocryphal tale that was told at journalism school that was like, it was a thought experiment, essentially. And it was like, you're in a famine and you're a photographer and you have a camera. There's a starving child in front of you that's about to be preyed upon by a vulture. You've probably heard this story. What do you do? Do you take the photograph or do you intervene to, say, like, to pick the child up and save it? because you take the photograph and it was like it's like that ultimate like ethical question in journalism like what is what is the ultimate good you know what can you achieve more with and that was it was increasingly i guess that became my problem with journalism is that i wanted to be lifting the starving child and i and i and i was seeing less of the benefit of taking the photograph
1: Lisa what was yours Uh, Your your journey.
3: Well, I I think I'm less idealistic than you. I feel
2: like I want to be more idealistic like that. But I think I can can date my decision about doing medicine back to a date, which is New Year's Eve 2009 when I was on maternity leave with... um, had had my first baby three months before and um, I arranged to spend New Year's Eve in the emergency department of St Vincent's Hospital uh, for some research I was doing for a book about um, illicit drug policy... And so I went there on New Year's Eve. I, you know, I sacrificed my New Year's Eve to go and, and do this research and I actually had the most fantastic time ever. I absolutely loved being in ED. I loved seeing... Did they let you nurse. do some
1: stitching? Pardon? Did they let you do some stitching? Oh, no, they
2: were, they were very ethical, I just observed. But um, they were... Uh, but, uh, yeah, I just loved watching all the nurses and doctors doing their work. I loved how it involved expertise but also street smarts. And then I just came home... Um, my husband says I was like, the next morning, I was like on a real high. And that was partly about how much caffeine I'd consumed. It was also that I did have a little bit of an epiphany where I thought, well, maybe I could, maybe would it be so bad to try and study medicine? And that's, yeah, where, I, where my journey started.
1: If that had been me, I'd have given up medicine. So my first experience of ED was because when we, in the days when it was a six year course, it took you forever to actually see patients. So, the one way you could see patients was to go into ED and you'd just be a kind of medical student in ED. And I was sent into this cubicle where this woman was waiting and I said, What's the problem? And she thrust her finger in my face and she said I had an accident with the sewing machine and there was a needle oh. going through her finger and I went, oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, if my medical career could have been over at that point.
2: So are we allowed to interview you now? And you're you're, ask what you're what was not. So, so what, what was it that, that turned you in the other direction, apart from close c- encounters with sewing needles? <laughs>
1: uh, um, well, like both of you, I didn't... It wasn't that I hated medicine, I, re- I really enjoyed clinical medicine, and, uh, but the, there was stuff I wanted to do more. I mean, I've told this story a few times, is that I was obsessed with the theatre when I was an adolescent, and I used to go to the Glasgow Citizens Theatre. On one occasion, you know, you know how you're told kids shouldn't do drugs. The reason they shouldn't do drugs is it changes their brain forever, you know, in terms of the receptors and everything for, for drugs. Never send your adolescent child to see Ibsen's last play. <laughs> Um, which is a play about regret. And uh, I won't tell the whole story, but it's a play about regret. And I, I came out of... This, it's a terrible play. But I came out of that. Thing, it changed my brain. Because the worst thing in life was... both. You were saying you had an ambition to do medicine, and that was the one thing you wanted to do. So I wanted to be an actor. And, um, but I also got into my head, I don't want to get to my 50s and look back on my life and wish there was something else I'd done. So I wanted to be an actor, and I... So, people think, ah, they want to hear the story that, um, you know, since I was a baby or a toddler, since every moment I could speak, I was playing with stethoscope. There was nobody in my family who was a doctor, um, or in my close family. And I did it out of convenience. It was actually the easy, it sounds odd to say it, but it was the easy choice because you never had to make a choice. Mm. Because I was under pressure from my family not to do acting. I mean, this, what Jewish mother wants her son to be the Jewish <laughs> actor rather than the Jewish doctor? <laughs> and, um, and so it was a lot of pressure, and I recognised that I didn't particularly want to go into a profession that was 93% unemployment. Mm. Safer to be a second-rate doctor than a second-rate actor, but that ate, so the same way, in a, in a flip sense mm. to you, Amy, mm. I sort of festered away mm. during medical school and did a lot of acting and directing. And it, it came to a, an abrupt end when I did an audition for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, which I failed miserably at, and I recognised I was not going to become an actor. And that's when I went, that's when I con- consoled myself, okay, back to medicine. But then it came back, and then I translated it into writing and broadcasting. Yeah. So, I came back. so I, it was never a higher calling in a sense, much, you know, people want you do you find people want to, tell, but I think people want you to tell that story that I'm doing it for the love of humanity. Yeah, you two clearly are.
2: <laughs> I don't know. Oh well, do you love I humanity. Don't, well, this is one thing I was worrying about the title of this um, session, a higher calling. So I feel like there's nothing worse than a martyr, other than one thing, which is a performative martyr. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like is that what we're being, performative martyrs, yeah. talking about our our higher calling? Yeah. But I, but I'm, but if I'm honest, like I do feel, I do just love medicine and helping people and mm. and all those those things, and I don't feel like. I don't feel like I'm being a martyr or suffering for it because I, I feel like I get a lot out of it as well. So I feel like it's a fair exchange. I don't feel like I'm.
1: But it wasn't easy for either. Being a mature medical student is not easy, particularly when you've got kids.
2: Yeah. Oh, we were talking about this, weren't we? Mm hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sleep deprivation. Yeah.
3: yeah. Being a special form of brain damage. All right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah and the funny, because both of us went through medical school at different times, but both both of us had little kids at the time, and we're talking through some of the things that you do to get through medical school with little kids, and, and a couple of things I was thinking of was, um, um, when I was maternity leave with my second child, I, I had a whole year off, but had to, to still sort of keep my studies up, so I'd keep a pharmacology textbook in the car, so um, if the baby slept, we could like park, and then I could do a bit of study, <laughs> um, and then also... At, at um, bedtime, sometimes um, my daughter having a choice between either a bedtime story or me practicing a respiratory exam or a knee exam <laughs> or something. Like- and she actually, she has fond memories of that. And she turned out fine. Yeah, <laughs> she
1: did. So that child's in the audience. I wonder if she remembers the absorption absorption <laughs> down man- down dynamics of digoxin. Yeah.
2: <laughs> she yeah she she she's quite good on uh, vitamin K and the liver. <laughs> sure. She's uh, excellent. She, yeah, she's
3: excellent
1: doctor in the making. But just to challenge this notion, I I remember talking to um, a public health physician, actually it was Boyd Swinburne who's an authority on obesity and so on, he spent his life in population health, he's back in New Zealand now, we were talking about uh, in the early days of um, Aboriginal kids going into medicine and graduating and Maori kids going in, in New Zealand going into medicine and I was saying oh but you know it must be Frustrating for them because they get grabbed as soon as they graduated and they go off and they do something more administrative because they're the. in those days there were, there were so few of them that they went into organisational roles in Aboriginal medical services and so on. And his comment was, they're going to do a damn sight more good doing that than seeing individual patients. Mm. And I just wonder what your perspective is because in journalism it's one to many, but you both spend your lives now one to one. Mm. Apart, you do both do a bit of writing. It has to be said. Mm. How does that ever? It got to me as in medicine, the one-to-one thing.
3: Yeah, I think it's it's the it's the question really about those two career choices, and it's something that I definitely get stuck on. I think it was that that feeling that I could have meaningful interactions with people, and that I could use the skills that I had developed in journalism like in a different setting that sort of took me that way. And people kept saying to me when I went to medical school, and you say, oh, I used to be a journalist, or I still am a journalist, and they'd be like, oh, you are going to be a medical journalist? I'm like, no, like, I'm leaving journalism. I'm not doing that anymore. And the further along that I've got, and now that I'm working, I see great value in using both of them. Like, I, I, I think that... There's this immense value, and we found ourselves on the precipice of this when COVID happened. Like suddenly, as someone who's like a journalist who has medical training, and you would have found this too, Norman, that you were sought after, and people wanted to like you to. And, and it and it illustrated for me that like we actually have a very special and unique skill set, you know, and it's it's important to use them to use them both. Um, and I find myself drawn to clinical work, certainly, but into other directions as well. And, and I don't know where my career will take me, but I don't think I'll be in the hospital five, seven days a week.
1: Lisa? This one-to-one thing?
3: I love I love the one-to-one.
2: I love hospitals. I love, I love all those things. I love, um, and I guess I wonder whether it goes back to that topic of idealism. I, I, I think I've... Um, I feel like I've got very modest aspirations at this point in my life. Like, I feel like... I feel like when I was younger, I thought, oh, maybe I can make the world better. All it needs is plucky people in their 20s with lots of enthusiasm and that's (laughs) going to change the world, as if plucky people in their 20s had never existed before. Um, (laughs) But now I feel like sometimes it's enough to make things better for an individual person Mm. or to maybe work at making the world not get worse. (laughs) Like, Mm. I've got modest aspirations and
3: um, I'm happy to do that one-on-one work. And I think the power of conversation is something that can't be underestimated. And I think that the power of narrative in medicine also can't be underestimated. Like, it's very healing to, to sit with someone and, like, have them tell, share their story with you and for you to reflect that back to them and to help them make sense of that, which is what you do, like, every day, all, all day. But, but those of us who don't work in psychiatry do it too, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's an important skill that maybe you can teach,
1: Well, there was a Harvard psychiatrist who's also an anthropologist who wrote a book called Narrative Medicine Mm. about, you know, it's it's just as important to get the narrative of somebody who's got diabetes or heart disease because you're not necessarily going to make them better unless you understand their personal story.
3: Well, it's it's the Osler quote, which is, you know, see the person who has the disease, don't see the disease. You know, a person isn't a diagnosis, they're a person.
1: Question: for, One question from the audience from Maria is, "Do you think that your skills with language and communication, using words wisely, make you help to make you a better doctor?" Oh,
3: without a doubt, I think so. Yeah. What do you think? Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely. And and
2: um, I, I think that's. I really feel it in mental health, especially with conditions that are stigmatised. It becomes so important to be able to tell people difficult things well, so that people can receive a diagnosis in a way that they can still see that there's hope and a future and a way to live with that. And when you get that wrong, you can really damage people and you can damage their sense of hope, you can damage their ability to face
3: what their diagnosis is. So I think it's, yeah, incredibly important to do those things well. And I see... Not it. shy away from it. Yeah, and I, I've definitely seen it um, in end-of-life situations. Like, I think... I remember when I did palliative care at medical school. The the conven the course convener giving this great this amazing lecture, and he was talking about like you know drugs, management of life, blah blah. blah. But the beginning of the talk was, you like you what you may tell many many people and be at many many people's deaths over the course of your career, but the, those for each of those individual families, they will remember you forever, and what you say they will remember. They will remember you, and it matters what you say and how you say it. And that really it really sat with me, and I think. It's it's absolutely true, like, and I think it doesn't just, like, apply in palliative care. It applies in emergency yeah. all the yeah. time. You have to tell someone they're having a miscarriage. You have to tell some a family that someone who came into the hospital who was alive is no longer alive. You know, like, you have to, I don't know, like, every single day. Yeah. And also, yeah, and it becomes
2: important to, to say, to make sure it's said well, but also to make sure it's the truth, because... Things can, you can make things so much worse for people if you sugarcoat things or you're inaccurate to make it a smoother conversation without being honest. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, I still, I still wonder what they do in medical school these days when you still hear the same complaints, though, about doctors not communicating. And when there's a disaster, when there's really bad mistakes being made, almost certainly communic- almost always communication's at the heart of it and systems problems and so on. Did did you get much training? Did it make a difference? Or was it what you came to medicine with that made the difference?
3: I'll be interested in your experience, because Lisa did postgrad, I did undergrad, so in very different cohorts. So I guess you were with other adults who had... So to explain,
1: there's kind of two... So mostly now medicine has moved to a shorter course that you do after you've done a science or other degree, and it's called an MD, four years. And then there's an undergraduate course, which is what I did and clearly what Amy did, which is six years, which you go to usually straight after school, and um, from beginning to end?
2: I think we actually got quite a lot. doesn't mean that it's always practised perfectly, but we are, it's a long time ago now, but I remember we, I think we even had a session on breaking difficult news or talking about difficult subjects where they actually got, they paid actors to come in and act difficult scenarios and for us to practise and have a chance to practise and then practise again
3: about getting, saying things right in a difficult situation. Mm. Did you have the acronym? Spikes. There was the, They taught us an acronym. Oh. I can't remember the context There were so now, many. I was acrony- like, I don't need an acronym to talk to someone. Um, I don't know. Like it's funny. As an undergrad, yes, they're mostly like people fresh out of school. They've often led very sheltered lives. Not all of them, but they've often led very sheltered lives, being hothoused into like going to medical school. You know, like being protected from the vicissitudes of the world. Uh, and I not only had was an adult, but, like, arguably as a journalist, like, you kind of do adult life on steroids. Like, you get exposed to everything, you know, like, death knocks, like, being in, like, disaster zones, refugee camps. Like, you know, like, I've lived the life of about five people. And so, like, no no conversation was scary for me, but what was scary for me was watching some of them navigate those conversations and thinking, oh, my God, like... (laughs) how are you going to be when you're actually in this situation? And it does make it... I actually think it makes it worse. Like, if yeah.
1: Well, in my, in my medical school class, there were no better in sixth year than they were in first year.
3: Yeah.
1: You do wonder what happened. But I
3: think them. that's that you... I don't think you can teach communication. I think you can learn communication, but I think you learn it in context, you know, like you learn it in conversation with people. Like, I don't know that you can sit someone down and go, this is how to talk about very difficult things, you know, and they teach you these very rote things, give, you know, if you feel uncomfortable, offer some tissues and a glass of water. Like, that's literally what we were were taught. And I was sort of like, why do you need to be told that? (laughs) Like, I don't know. It seems like common sense to me, but...
2: But, yeah. But if I can also stand up for some of those people who don't necessarily communicate well, I think also, there are. Oh, the world we, does we need orthopedic surgeons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we bring. Yeah, we bring good particular <laughs> skills, but there can also be people who are actually really good at what they do, and they just don't have the gift of the gab or whatever. Hmm. And um, yeah, it doesn't yeah. discount. And they need to learn it, but yeah. Not they, everyone. They can. might have, you know, excellent skills in... Well,
1: there was the stereotypes, you know, they became yeah. anaesthetists or pathologists because they didn't have to yeah. talk... Well, anaesthetists do actually have to talk. Yeah,
3: we need to get radiologists yeah, also, yeah. like, to hide in their dark room. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Be. But, you know, if they want to be an interventional, what's have got to talk? But <laughs> the... But the other thing I want to talk about is this sort of conflict that you might have coming in both as a mature student but also from journalism. Journalism, we're the fourth estate. We're there to hold people accountable. Mm. We're often called lefties because Mm. we're critical of received wisdom and government, particularly the government of the day or whatever. (laughs) And then you go into medicine... And some people go into medicine thinking it's going to be the same, yet it's an extraordinarily conservative profession, Mm -hmm. and medical schools are usually very conservative, less so sometimes with the new graduate courses, but they're very conservative. And even though they might teach you stuff, the people who are actually teaching you clinically are conservative themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about just in their own sense of themselves rather than what they vote for. Did you find yourself coming up against barriers to your ideology or belief in life? Big time.
3: Yeah, I did. Yeah, I found, I, ch- I found that probably the hardest thing about going to medical school. Like, the science stuff was, like, absolutely brain-busting and took me a long time. But that, like, hierarchical, like, this is what you're talking about, the, the very hierarchical way that medicine operates and it's sort of like you will respect someone because of their, you know, status and you, it's not to be questioning people and no kind of, like, credit given for any other life experience you may have had. Like, it was very kind of, um, like, I found it very erasing. And also, like, I don't know, I understand, like, I guess there's arguments on both sides. Medicine is conservative because, you know, it's about managing risk, and I understand that, and that's a necessary evil, perhaps. But on the other side of things is if we never question received wisdom, like, we will never... We'll never improve. We'll never... But
1: but it's very different. I mean, the conservatism is we're not going to jump at new stuff all the time. Mm. We'll wait until it's proven to use, which is... I believe in that. I mean, that's fair enough. Mm. But this hierarchical thing is... can be erosive and it's dangerous because Mm. if you don't feel you can talk back to the boss and say that's not safe...
2: Agree. And I I feel like that's where graduate medicine has made a real difference because there's so many people going into medicine now who might have legal experience... Media experience, experience working for unions, all kinds of things. And there is this change that's sweeping through where people who are junior doctors have these skills and are not
3: very afraid. Like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think and medical school's we've... the worst, though. Like, I've... Oh, yeah. I found yeah. once I started yeah, working, people started seeing you as an adult. They were interested yeah. in... It was remarkable. Like, overnight, you're yeah, the, the, the end overnight. of six-year med school and you're a nobody and nobody even looks at you and it's just like, whatever, like the student. And then the next minute... You've got your prescriber number. It's like, oh hello, you yeah. know, Also, well, the you know, in the corridor. <laughs> That's yeah. why I try though to never forget and to be extra
2: nice to have students to yeah. not repeat that.
3: Yeah. Too. Yeah. But it's a it's a broader question about culture. And I think there is a cultural problem in medicine, absolutely. And it's slowly changing, I think,
1: but yeah, as, young, as younger people come into the, you know, each, each specialty and it changes. An interesting question here from um, somebody in the audience. I'm a nurse who would like to know more about the systemic problems such as short staffing, a bullying culture, and how we can change through the power of conversation. Lisa?
2: Uh, first of all, I think one of the most important things that we need to work on changing is really, truly working in multidisciplinary teams where we don't have separation between nurses and doctors, between doctors and allied health, and we recognise we all have skills and and that we all have our own expertise. And I I think that is changing, but I think that needs to change more. Mm. And as for bullying, um, I think obviously that's not acceptable and we need to, to have the bravery to stand up against it when we see it. Yeah, I think that's something I feel confident doing. I feel like I've been lucky; I haven't had um, been exposed to much. But again, the nice thing about coming to these things late in life is you're not afraid. Yeah.
3: yeah,
1: I think that's Thank right. Peace. And I think that, yeah... At least yeah. you can say to, you know, a bullying psychiatrist, what is your problem?
3: Yeah. Oh, I once... I, I once, um, you know, this is a famous thing that happens to interns. You ring a tertiary centre, like, from... I, I work rurally. You ring a tertiary centre, you ring the registrar to, like, give them a referral, ask for advice, or you, like, want them to be transferred. And i got to say, like, neurology, neurosurgery, they're always so bad. And at, like, I rang someone once, and they just basically gave me an absolute earful because, you know, you're an intern I've talked to you how I like. And uh, I said, there's no need to speak to me like that. It's very unprofessional. How about I call you back in five minutes when you had a chance to reconsider and hung up. <laughs> and they were just like, what? <laughs> but, like, you need to do that. Like, people need to do that. And if we, as people who can do that, need to model that to yeah. other juniors too.
2: Yeah. And yeah. I think also appealing to professionalism is a very smart way to do it because I think what doctors do understand is the idea that we must um, try to achieve excellence, and we have to emphasise that if you care about excellence, you have to also care about excellence in the way you treat people, and excellence in the way you manage an organisation, and excellence in the way um, you interact.
1: Yeah, yeah but I mean, coming back to nurses, I mean, nurses who leave the profession, that's what they complain about, that they're still bullied and demeaned on mm. the ward mm. and not given respect. Although I do, rem- you're know, talking about phone referral, I do remember a famous story. I did my final year surgery at um, in Inverness in Scotland, and... Um, There was a GP, and GPs used to be able to refer directly to the ward in Scotland. It didn't come through ED, they they trusted GPs to go straight into the ward. But anyway, there was a GP in Malague in the west of Scotland called Donald Duck. Oh no! And the apocryphal story is that he phones up with a patient with peritonitis, and the receiving registrar says, Hello, it's Dr. Donald Duck here. And he said, Yeah, I'm fucking Mickey Mouse. Mm. I, I want to talk a little bit about but coming back to this notion of... Um, you, did, you, did you translate that uh, in Auslan? <laughs> um, I'm sure there is a way of doing it. Um, the sort of personal ideology and sort of beliefs. So, for example, if I just talk personally for a moment, it's, it's, it's not why I went into I went to journalism as, as kind of my release for acting and... Expressing myself in writing and creativity and so on. But in the end, it was, it's, it, you know, I spent most of my life doing public health stuff through the media. <clears throat> and in, in my book that I've just written, I spent my last chapter talking about climate change. How do you resolve the bigger stuff that's going on? Activism, stuff that, as journalists, you know, when you, when you look at the science, you communicate the science, it's just clear there's no, this is not about ideology, this is about science and the way the world's going. How do you deal with that on a personal level? Or is that just something that's outside medicine or inside medicine?
3: I think it depends who you are. Like, I I personally believe that it's part of our job. It's a core part of our job. Like, as someone who works in the emergency department, like, during bushfires or, you know, heat events, like, we see people come in. This is going to happen more. I think... We, it's on us to have these conversations with our patients and to normalise having those conversations as part of like a, a clinical inter- interaction where you, you talk to people about climate change. Like I don't think it should be outside the consulting room. It's part of our lived experience at this point and will only become more so. I don't know what you think, Lisa. Lisa. Um, I probably have a different view in terms of like,
2: Interactions with patients themselves, but certainly on a broader level, definitely climate change is relevant to medicine. And there's been lots of there's been there's doctors there's a whole organisation, isn't
3: there, about doctors working on yeah yeah climate doctors change. for the environment yeah yeah I, I think, think it's, well, it's, it's
1: the medical system is a huge contributor
3: yeah seven percent of emissions is the is the healthcare system it'll be like a whole country's worth of emissions. So
1: there's a I think it's, I think he's an emergency physician in Melbourne. I think he's um, who has devoted part of his life to. Converting hospitals to electricity, because mm. hospitals are huge consumers of gas mm. Mm. and petrol, and just just changing them to electricity makes an, an an enormous difference.
2: But yeah, it's yeah, I mean it's completely relevant to health, and it's it's relevant to mental health. I mean, mm. remember some of the some of the studies around mental health during COVID and and the pandemic. One of the groups of people that were most affected by um, by by COVID, in terms of their mental health, were people who had experienced the bushfires and like the idea of these rolling yeah. climate crises and pandemics and things like that. It is absolutely relevant to people's and physical and mental
3: health. And, and I think about the it the mental health stuff is a huge is a huge thing that I think yeah. doesn't get enough enough truck. Yeah.
1: What do you feel when you see you know the young ophthalmologist in Wuhan who died of you know tried died and but he was victimized for Talking about this new epidemic, when you see doctors at the front line and hospitals being blown up in the Ukraine, does your journalism side come out here? I mean, uh, I mean, I feel it keenly. Do you?
3: Yeah, I absolutely do. And I think this is where I see the crossover t- between, um, you know, like public advocacy, journalism and, and medicine is, you know, MSF's whole founding kind of ideology is around the idea of témoignage, which is bearing witness. And I think that is part of what we do as well. And it's a very powerful thing of what we do.
1: But um, well, hold a second. You're in an emergency department. How do you do it?
3: How do you bear witness? hmm you're bearing witness to someone's story. Like, you know, they've come to you on the worst day of their life potentially and you're there to to walk them through it and to help them feel, you know, a sense of safety as much as they can. Bearing witness to someone else's experiences is, you know, I think it's the greatest privilege of our job. And I think that about journalism too. Like, and that's where I see the crossover. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And I feel like one thing that I think is useful is
2: when you have... Sort of frontline experience in health. When you do want to say something about policy or the world, it does have that extra power. I think if you've 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 experienced it firsthand, that you you're not just you don't just have an opinion. You're actually talking about your own professional
3: experience. Yeah, I was I was having this discussion with someone recently around you know Desmond Tutu's whole thing about. Um, you know, we can keep pulling people out of the river or we can go upstream and see why they're falling in. I think you get the intelligence to figure out where they, why are they falling in by talking to the people that you pull out of the river, you know? Yeah, like, yeah it matters. Yeah,
2: yeah. and, you, yeah, you often see see things happening or trends occurring, I think especially in ED before they're even written about or talked about elsewhere, so...
1: But where's the effector arm? So you notice it and, you you know, there's constant frustration. The other way of thinking about it is the... Ambulance at the bottom of the cliff mm. rather than building yeah. the fence at the top. That's the, the, the other way of talking about it. What's the effect or arm back when you're feeling frustrated at the front line when you're a doctor who's doing one-on-one stuff? What's the effect or arm back to the building the fence at the top of the cliff or seeing what's happening in the village upstream? Mm.
3: Like as in how do we...
1: Yeah. Well, this or are right. you happy just doing what you're doing and noticing it?
3: Possibly we feel differently about this, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that, but also I think
2: the important thing to remember is there's all kinds of people in health doing stuff at the top of the cliff as well, that it is, that there are, yeah, all kinds of people working in public health, in preventative health, all kinds of things, and, and that is part of health. Like, it's just as much a part of health as an ED.
3: Yeah, I think so. I think, for me, it's where I see that crossover between my two worlds that I so like, <laughs> strongly pushed back on when I was first.
1: Um. Which is why you've not given up writing. Well, neither of you have given up
3: yeah, writing. Yeah, like, I guess where I find that kind of, like, looping back is, is yeah, writing about the broader issues. You know, I still I still contribute to, like, public debate around, like, health issues. Um, and I think that they, they marry together really well. Um, and I don't know, I, maybe I haven't changed my mind about whether journalism can affect change or not, but... Um, I think I could affect more change by combining those things yeah. then. Yeah, in combination, it's yeah. much
2: more powerful, isn't it, than one yeah. or the other alone.
1: There's yeah. some great questions and comments. Let's, uh, somebody asks, you started med- doing medicine when you have got little kids. Is it ever too late to do medicine?
3: No, I say never, never. Never. Do you say never? No, yeah, I don't... I, is, is, are you having thoughts?
2: <laughs> Come find us afterwards. We'll yeah. talk to you. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's. It's if you've got the energy for it. I don't think it's and too late. Cause I, and I really do believe that the things that you do before medicine, you'll bring to medicine. Mm. What whatever it might be. So I can
3: go for it. It, I would, it won't be easy though. Like no, it's, it's not easy. No, I'd like what. Well, the
1: hardest things getting. I always say the hardest things getting in. I don't think I'd get into medicine now. It was much easier in my day to get into medicine. And uh, I just don't think I'd get in now. I don't think I'd pass the GAMSAT. Just too many difficult questions. That's why I avoided the GAMSAT. (laughs) And
2: and also, so many of these things are... uh,
1: like. Sorry, just to explain. This is the the brain-twisting exam that you get um, to actually even qualify yourself to apply for medical school. I'm very sceptical about it, actually, because I think it's just a way of eliminating people rather unfairly from the system, Mm. rather than just talking to somebody and finding out their aptitude. And what used to happen in Scotland was they would take a lot of people in in first year and then you knew there was only so many places for second year. So there's a lot of people who were actually That's never going they to do it in New Zealand.
3: They do that in okay. New Zealand, yeah. It's kind of like you all start in health sciences and then, like, if you've proven yourself in health sciences and you want to do it, you, you kind of go on. I would say, like you've probably had this experience too, Like people, particularly at the beginning of med school, would like approach me and be like, I'm so inspired, really thinking about doing it. Do you have any advice? And I'd be like, if you want to do this, you have to really want it because yeah. it's the only thing that's <laughs> going to keep you going yeah. <laughs> through the dark times.
2: And, uh, and also it'd be good to speak to not just people who changed into medicine and enjoy it, but all the people who are doing medicine and, uh, and complain every day and wish yep. they made another choice because there's plenty of those as well. Yeah, yep.
1: It's probably more yeah. in law, though, than medicine. Say, right? <laughs> Do you have more or less confidence in the world of medicine and those practising it before you were in the thick of it or afterwards? Oh...
3: It's like that whole thing. Don't don't go to the sausage factory and see where the sausages are made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like I, honestly, sometimes like you know dinner party conversation, telling people stories from the hospital, they're like, that's horrifying. So yes, I don't, don't know. I know. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Want, yeah, well, just kind of like I think people don't really understand, um, like the extent to which the health system. Is like holding on by a thread sometimes, you know, like how under resourced we are, how much like we make it work through sheer goodwill and commitment sometimes, and how many administrative issues there are, how clunky the system is. Like,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Each era of medical students had their own books about the experience going through medicine, and there was an American book called House of God.
3: Yeah, that's, that's the best one. Yeah, Let's that's the, the seminal one. text. That's the yeah. best one. Homers go to grounds. Written yeah. by
1: um, somebody who actually became psychiatrist yes. himself. And, um, and very funny when you're going through it and all sorts of um, like naming people like gomers, which is get out of my emergency room. <laughs> and, um, and then if people fall, they either fall from an orthopedic height or a neurological, neurosurgical height and so on. So we chuckle away at it. And what I thought was so funny, uh, not long after I joined the ABC, I dramatised, with the permission of the author, I dramatised it f- uh, to make a show out of it yeah. with uh, Drew Forsyth and Henry Sepps and others. And the audience hated it.
3: Oh, no. So that's not
1: the view of medicine. So we laugh at it.
3: Yeah, we like and it because it's black humour and yeah. you're like, yeah. that is so... And it has
1: true. an element of truth to it. it's with, horrible. Only the good die young yeah. and so on. I mean, it's and not it, funny yeah. for the general community. It's funny. No, no for and, but also sleep.
2: sometimes I think that, I mean, you have to be careful about humour in medicine, but also sometimes the humour is there to survive. Yeah. Like, we see some awful things that are hard to process and... Yeah. Sometimes the only... Per- it's, it's kind of funny because sometimes the only people you can process it with are people who are going through it as well
3: or have seen the same things. And don't you feel like that's also a thing in journalism? Like, yeah. I feel like, you know, I would come back from a trauma and it would be like, you know, the boss would be like, let's have a debrief. And I'd be like, I don't... Like, I just don't want to debrief. I actually just want to go and have a drink with okay. people who've been through it. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. And then also it's tricky as well because sometimes it's almost like you can't debrief with people who've been through it as well because when you see other people going through the same thing and, and they seem to be fine, sometimes there can be a sense of shame or guilt if you do feel yep. affected by something.
3: Yeah, yeah. And it's
2: almost like you have to, to check with people who don't live that every day to realise, oh, wait, actually, that really was traumatic and scary and dangerous. Yeah. And it's OK to have been rattled.
1: Yeah. There was this period of egalitarianism in hospitals where they thought it was elitist for doctors to have their own restroom and places, place where you eat. I mean... My, where I did my first job in pediatrics, there was a house in the go- in the grounds where you went and had breakfast. But it was where you went to debrief. You talked about it the night before, and you 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 got over whatever trauma was there. And th- there's not that many places in the modern hospital for that yeah. to happen.
2: Oh, I, I think you have to m- have to make them. You have to make those places. Mm. Like um, like I remember a, a situation where um a situa- like a very a, quite a dangerous situation where someone was being very threatening with boiling water and there were medical students there and they weren't used to like being in a dangerous situation like that. I remember after that just taking them off the... taking them away from the hospital, going and getting a coffee. And there's something about debriefing from those sorts of events in a way that is not formalised. There's something where it isn't like just a hot debrief or a cold debrief that feels like part of an administrative process. It actually says, let's actually go and do something human and
1: mm. if you want to talk debrief about, as about, humans yeah.
2: and not just to tick get tick an administrative box about a debrief mm. there's
1: a question here about the, getting the narrative from people and in the modern hospital where you're under pressure and poorly resourced, you don't have the time to get the narrative. Is that true?
3: I think being a junior doctor is the time actually when you may you may have that time like and I work in a rural hospital, so probably like some of those pressures you know aren't there to the same extent. Like, as the intern, you have lots of administrative tasks to do, which, if you're like a grown up who's had a job before, it takes you not very long. And then, like, you can go and have conversations with people. But you also, I don't know, you have to want to have the conversation and prioritize having the conversation, you know? And I think that's the thing. Most doctors are possibly not inclined to have the conversation. But it makes a massive difference. I ran into one of the oncologists recently, a local oncologist, and he says, every single person that you refer to me, they're like, oh, that Amy, I remember her. And it's like, because I like to have a chat with people, you know? Yeah. Um, And possibly because I wear very colourful scrub caps. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) yeah, I think that in itself... You, you've been internalised as part of someone's journey and what an incredible thing. You know, you've made an impact.
1: And it might take more time up front, but probably less time down the way because you know more about them.
3: Yeah, and they say that, don't they? In
2: I think there's the, that, that study about GP consultations that if you actually just let people speak, often they only need to speak for a minute or a minute and a half to say their piece, but it makes all the difference to allow people to speak and not just pepper or just throw questions at people. Mm. Um, as soon
3: as they enter a room. I think the clas- I, I've done six months of GP working as a GP, and I think the classic thing that they teach you at med school, which is actually so true about general practice, is get to the end of the con- the consult and say like, is there anything else? Oh, <laughs> the, the, what
2: do they call it? The door handle conversation <laughs> yeah. where just as That's you, the, the they've, third
1: they've, question, yeah, they drop well, the, the truth bomb yeah. at the end. Yeah. 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 You know, one of the pioneers of modern general practice, Michael Ballant in Britain, who's also a psychiatrist, said. 30% of people who come into a general practice, what they come in for is not what they say is absolutely. The it's, it's not a sore throat.
3: It, it's absolutely true. Uh,
1: unless you ask that question, you don't get there. Another question we've got here, really good questions, by the way, is um, the ethical situation. So when you're a journalist and you get a good story about mm-hmm. a situation, in a hospital, for example, you want to go out there and actually do it. What happens when you come across a good story now? Mm, That's really
3: hard, I got asked that at my, um, so we have exit interviews as part of like graduating from medical school and it's essentially like you get, you have to write this essay about like your journey through medical school and why you should be allowed to be a doctor um, and the things that you've learned and then you get examined on this essay by two doctors. And um, yeah, they asked me that question. They were like, so you used to be a journalist and like how do you see yourself balancing like privacy confidentiality internal workings of the hospital. Just this
1: code for we don't trust you?
3: <laughs> hey, they graduated me, so it must be okay. It's really hard. Like, I think um, certainly during COVID, I found it challenging, like, seeing, um, seeing problems that were, like, systemic problems, um, but being under very... Like, it was made very clear by hospital administration that, like, we were essentially under gag orders, like, not to speak to the press at all. And so, yeah, none of us could say anything, um, and I found that really challenging. But I think it's a really fundamental part of what we do because people... The clinical encounter doesn't work unless people trust trust you implicitly that, like, whatever is said and done within a hospital is not for public consumption, you know? So those temptations, I think, are there.
2: Yeah, I I, I would put privacy, confidentiality, professional ethics above everything. Mm. But But part of... But it's completely consistent with professional ethics. If you see a problem to escalate that and raise it within the proper channels. Yeah. And I think escalating them within the proper channels, within, within the health system, is probably going to be much more effective than going and talking to a journalist anyway. Like, mm. it's a very roundabout way to try and... I think normally... I think also, I think often the way it works is once someone has to go to the media, probably the, the issue's been lost already. Like, don't you find that? That things that often happen, change
3: happens in the shadow of the media rather than through the media? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like having come from the other side, you also understand that, man, the news cycle moves on so quickly. You might have destroyed your career. Like, you might have trashed your career, set it up in flames because you wanted to take a stand against something and the caravans moved on. Yeah. Like, do you know?
2: Yeah, and I think I think, think just in, in medicine or life generally, it's OK to trash your career for a principle or to change something. But I don't think trying to get a newspaper story is that change. No. <laughs> no. So no do, you, like
1: do you feel the system is more is responsive? I mean, I remember doing some workshops with junior doctors a few years ago, in, in, not in New South Wales, in another state, and just giving giving them a chance to talk about safety and quality. And we've had two nights in a row, with probably 150 junior doctors in total with two nights, where they felt in a relaxed, safe environment, and they came up with two or three, each night, two or three situations where patients were dying and the system wasn't listening to them. They just felt they weren't heard. Do you feel the system is more responsive now?
2: Personally, in psychiatry, I do. I feel like we... I, 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 may, maybe this is idealistic. Maybe here I, I am being idealistic now. But I, but I do feel like we talk amongst ourselves about things we want to change and we tend to escalate it. I don't know whether that's different in other places or other specialties, but... Mm. Yeah, I think I think people I think my colleagues are interested in changing things when they see problems.
3: I think I, I think the question is what do we mean by the system? Like do you mean do you mean my hospital administration? Do you mean the state government? Do you mean the federal government? Like what do you mean?
1: Well, it could be at any level of the system, but usually when mistakes are made and problems are there, there's there, it's nobody's one person's fault. It's how things are organised, it's how reports flow, it's how the paperwork works, it's the incentives in the system. You know, there are all sorts of things, or it's just the way they organise ambulances coming in that might be different from usual if you just did something different. Um, you, you know, the, where somebody in charge has got to change the way you do business.
2: Yeah. I think the hard thing is that I think that... I think that if there, if there are individual, like, clever ideas that could make things better, those ideas, I think, are generally reasonably received. Mm. The problem is so many of the issues are massive, system-level, yeah. um, enormously expensive problems to change. Like, yeah. so much money goes into the health system, but it's still not enough. Like, yeah. that's not... It's not a, a
3: clever idea that's going to fix that. It's a whole, complete revolution yeah. in the way we think about health. And often, so often, I feel like... Medical errors, call them what you will, are Swiss cheese phenomena. And so, like, how do you plug all the holes in the cheese? Like, yeah, it's a, it's really. So just difficult. to
1: explain that, that if you're in an airplane and the something goes wrong, the, the airplane's designed for mistakes. And the idea, is like Swiss cheese, the mistake only goes for as far as the first hole in the cheese. It can't get round. And when you actually get a crash, somehow the Swiss cheese hasn't worked, and you go straight through to a disaster situation. And that's what they try and build into medicine. If somebody makes a mistake, it stops there and doesn't actually go any further and harm patients.
3: Mm, and when people... When harm does come, it's, yeah, it's passed through so many sort of holes before it gets there.
1: What's COVID done for you both?
3: Oh, it's a bit of a heavy question,
1: Norman. It is. But I've only got nine minutes left.
3: OK. Oh, shit. Nine minutes... Um, it, it was such a weird time to go into the profession. Like, yeah, I think it's... it's we've not known anything... or I've not known anything different you have. I, I have never worked in the hospital without wearing PPE. Like, I've never kind of not had to wear in a 95 mask, like, a day of my working life. Um, and well, I... Th-
1: came into clinical... Came Was so, practice when you... So
3: I, I finished medical school... Uh, My last year of medical school was when COVID all happened, was first happening and then, yeah, graduated into it. I think um, it's what I have observed is like the system is in crisis, you know, like it's people, the levels of burnout that people are experiencing are like off the charts. I don't think that there's, I don't think there's a, a level of understanding in the public domain about that to the degree that you can see it if you're in the system itself. Um, And it's, do you
2: find as well, the burnout, it's not so much, it's not about enormous numbers of people with COVID in hospitals, it's about everything has just become so so slow and caught up in, there's so much administration and so much distraction from doing your job because of all the different layers of... Absolutely. And I
3: (sighs) I think what people don't understand is like, yeah, People oh, are tired of it. Well, people just go, Oh, but COVID's not really thinking about it. Yeah, like true. There's not that much COVID in the hospital right now. What there is though is like a massive backlog of people who yes, didn't get surgeries, didn't it. have their chronic diseases seen to. Yeah. Like, it's absolutely nuts. Yeah. I left the emergency department yesterday morning and there we have like fifteen, sixteen beds, and fourteen of them are occupied by admitted patients who have no bed. Yeah. And so like what, what we do in that situation is, like, you see people on the ambulance trolley. Like, you're literally treating people the whole thing, their whole time in the ED, they're on the trolley, and then they just bundled yeah. away again. Like, it's...
2: And, yeah, and it's, it is almost like EDs are becoming their own wards now, where people are there for some time, especially for mental health patients oh, who yeah. can be stuck there for days now. Oh, we ha- and we- it also means people are in these incredibly high-stimulus, uncomfortable
3: environments where they're not getting the treatment they need. Absolutely, and it's, it's terrible for everyone. It's terrible for the staff, it's terrible for the patient, it's terrible for the other patients, you know? Like, it's just... And also, I think the other thing about COVID is that the system was
2: already yeah. struggling before then. It was, it's just been the icing on the cake, hasn't it? Like, yeah. it,
3: was, it wasn't, it was... Like, ramping was, everyone was before trying, yeah. COVID. It's just, yeah. yeah, it's become exponentially more so. But, like, how do we fix this problem? You know
2: well,
1: that, that was answer? going to be my next question. I'm glad you asked <laughs> it. You can take a seat. Oh,
3: actually, I do
2: have an answer. yeah. Oh, no, I actually do. Well, one, I think one of the bits of the answer is properly funding general
3: practice. Yeah, 100%.
2: I, I, feel, I feel so sorry for GPs. They do such an important job. They carry, like, in, in, you know, if you're looking at mental health, they carry so much of the, do so much of the heavy lifting with mental health and they're not properly compensated for it. It's so hard for people to get a GP appointment... It's almost impossible for them to get a build appointment. And we say we have universal health care. And how can we say that when people can't
1: and get far a far appointment? And there's far too much telehealth, which you'd see in ED, where GPs are not seeing the patient... To get through the patients, they're not seeing them mm. and missing stuff. And yeah, people are turning yeah. up in ED with conditions that have been missed because they've had a telehealth consultation.
3: And it's a, it's a vicious cycle, right? Like, you know from being on the other side that... So general practice is not, like, a good kind of financial... And you don't go... Like, I didn't go into medicine to make money, but, like, you can't even make ends meet as a general practitioner. And then it becomes... So people who are in medical school thinking about, what am I going to do? They go, I don't want to go into general practice. So then it just contributes further to, like, the dearth of GPs, and the cycle continues, like... It's not a difficult problem to fix, it's a structural problem, though, like, yeah. And, of course, because GPs are paid by the federal government and hospitals are funded
2: by the state government, there's no incentive for either one to take the pressure off the other?
3: No.
1: Are we giving you a lot of confidence in the health system? (laughs) (laughs) So, another question here is, um, in a hypothetical dystopian future, who would you want to run the shop? A war zone journalist or an ED doctor?
3: Ooh... Are you offering me the Prime Ministership? That's well, I think, I think awesome. somebody is in the audience, yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I don't know. ED, doctor. Can't they be both? Yeah, can't... Yeah. How, aren't I the evidence that you can be both? I don't... Right. What would you... What would you do? Yeah, I feel like... I feel like me, as the product of having done medical school, is, like, a much more nuanced person than me, who was just, like, an idealistic journalist who was out there being like, the world needs to change, you know? Now I'm like... Yeah, I, I found like having to transition to that, like, what is it, type one, type two thinking? Oh, do you right, know yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like having to think methodically.
1: Yeah,
2: there's some, but there's some, something nice, isn't there, about I think that change from from journalism to medicine. You go from pointing out the pro- other people's problems and how they can make the world better, and then you're suddenly in this position where you actually have to make choices and you have to do things, and it's your responsibility.
3: Yeah, that's to, right. To do something. Yeah be the change you wish to see in the world, yeah. etc.
1: For those of you who don't like Slido or you find it daunting, we've got time for a couple of questions from the floor if you want to ask anything.
0: Hi.
1: Why psychiatry and not psychology? Hmm. Why
2: psychiatry and not psychology? Oh, um, I, f- I have to start the preface by saying psychology is really important. I respect it as a profession.
1: Can
2: <laughs> um, okay, you got that I, off I... your
1: chest. Now answer the question.
2: <laughs> I did medicine because I wanted to be a doctor. And initially, I wanted to do AD. Um, But I found my way to psychiatry. But I think, I feel like um, one aspect that's really important um, in mental health treatment is medical treatment and um, addressing physical illness as well. And I like being in a profession that can address everything, whether it's the medical side or the psychological side. And also, I think there's power in being someone who can prescribe medicine, who might say to someone, In this situation, I don't think medicine's going to help. I could... I have the power to give you medication, but I'm actually saying it's not the right course of action. I think there's power in that as well. That's my argument.
1: From a clinical psychologist, clearly. (laughs) I suppose my final reflection is that I suspect for the three of us there'll always be that little bit of tension between the one-to-one and the one-to-many and the... You know, we've grown up with that population-based approach. And that's what changed for, for me for COVID. I while well, I kind of had that as a theme in my broadcasting and journalism, it came to the fore in COVID, is that you, you suddenly felt you were a public health person as more than a journalist. Or, but you, you were the public
3: health, health person. Yeah, you were
2: not. Well,
1: well I wasn't, but the, that's, that was the danger. Was, I, I, you, know, I don't have a, you know, I don't have postgraduate qualifications in epidemiology and population health. Yeah. But you, you you had to combine both, and that was actually quite a different, quite a different, quite difficult moral and ethical dilemma sometimes.
3: Yeah, and I definitely I felt that, responsibility quite heavily at times like yeah I'm like I don't know anything like I'm just a, I'm just a journalist who's at medical school but people wanted someone who could interpret what was happening and
1: explain it to them. So I think sometimes somehow for the three of us for the rest of our careers it's going to be a bit of both really. Could you please join me in thanking Lisa and Anna
0: Watch this talk and others from Antidote 2022 on Stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.